Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. So I think I'm going to get us started so that we have time to um, engage with our speaker. Um, uh, my name is uh, Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm here. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which basically gives me the privilege of um, hosting this seminar, uh, helping to organize and host this seminar. Here at WAP, we are committed to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education, um, which is an ambitious uh, mission uh, agenda, very worthwhile. And um, this seminar plays a role toward that mission by connecting uh, scholars with scholars in our community, but also um, Students and staff and other practitioners who are who are uh, committed to this you know broader cause, and so we have these wonderful opportunities to hear from folks like our our um, our uh, presenter today about really important policy relevant uh, cutting edge research. Our um, one thing I'd like to um, highlight before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to highlight that while we feel like we're sitting in a small seminar room, we're actually joined um, by a broader uh, community of podcast downloaders. Um, so as we think about and we manage the conversation, we should take into account that there are people um, who will be um, joining us uh, remotely. So now I get to introduce our speaker today, who is uh, Professor Medina Ajinor. She's an assistant professor of social and behavioral sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Um, and she, um, I'm not gonna actually elaborate too much because I'm dying to learn about your research, but one of the very exciting things about having Professor Ajinor is that she's really someone who is working in very serious ways looking at um, intersectionality and its implications for health and, um, and with important implications for, for, for health policy. So um, for instance, as a, as a postdoctoral fellow at the um, School of, of um, School of Public Health, she um, was studying um, social, uh, social epidemiology, cancer pre prevention, and LBGTQ health. And she combines both quantitative and qualitative methods to gain her insights. And this is just such important stuff. And so I'm dying to just have you come up here and let, to let us hear from you. So please join me in welcoming. Oh, one, one thing is I'm going to have to, because I was, when, I, when I'm um, called by my dean, I have to come and run. And I have been partway through the seminar. So I'm going to dash out. But it, it's not for any lack of enthusiasm. I'm a little mad at him. That's OK. <laughs> All right. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you all so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here with all of you today to really talk about a topic that is very important to me and I imagine very important to a lot of folks in this room, namely why intersectionality matters for public health in general, in general and women's health research and practice in particular. So you may have noticed that in recent years, there's really been an explosion of content discussing intersectionality in relation to a whole host of issues, including politics, law, sports, and entertainment. There's even an intersectionality Wikipedia page and over 13,000 YouTube videos on the topic. 
The term intersectionality, which um, folks, who's heard of the term intersectionality? Okay, great, probably why you're here. Um, and who knows what it actually means? Okay, so some fewer folks, okay, and then some hesitation. Okay, great, so we're gonna talk about that today. Um, but the term itself was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 in her groundbreaking legal scholarship on race and gender. As a concept, though, intersectionality has been around for much longer and has roots in black feminist theory, um, which was developed in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and elucidates how sexism and racism simultaneously affect the lived experiences of black women. So this is a slide showing a couple of the key titles in black feminist theory that um, paved the way for intersectionality to come about. So knowing a little bit about the roots of intersectionality, you may be asking yourselves, okay, well, what is it? Um, so just to reassure everyone, there's actually no one-size-fits-all definition of intersectionality. However, Patricia Hill Collins and Surma Bilgay, who are two prominent sociologists and intersectionality scholars, put forth a definition in their new book titled Intersectionality that I find particularly useful. Namely, that intersectionality is an interdisciplinary analytic tool that allows us to more accurately capture the complexity in the world, in people, and in human experiences. And these experiences are shaped by multiple forms of social inequality that act in diverse and mutually influencing ways. Another definition that I find um, also particularly useful that I use to guide my own research, which focuses specifically on health and equities, and the health and healthcare experiences of marginalized populations is a definition provided by Bonnie Thornton Dill, who is also a sociologist and intersectionality scholar. And she states that intersectionality is an analytical strategy, an approach to understanding human life and behavior rooted in the experiences and struggles of disenfranchised people. It is also an important tool linking theory with practice, both matter, that can aid in the empowerment of communities and individuals. So although a few researchers have been doing this work for quite some time now, um, we've really seen an increase in the number of public health research studies that use an intersectional approach in the past few years. And most of these studies have focused on the intersection of multiple social identities, especially gender, sexual orientation, and race ethnicity, and a few have also examined how multiple forms of social inequality, especially sexism, heterosexism, and racism, affect the health of diverse populations. So I'm going to save you all about an hour. I'm very glad you came, but talk's done. No, just kidding. Um, and, but I'm going to give you the punchline of my talk now. Um, intersectionality matters for population health and health equity. But since you are all kind enough to be here today, uh, what I'm going to do over the next 30 or so minutes is give you a sense of why and how intersectionality matters for population health and in particular um, for health equity. So what you see here is a simplified diagram of how research can be used to develop evidence-based programs, policies, and practices that in turn help promote population health and health equity. And what I'm going to argue today is that by shaping the research process, 
intersectionality also shapes the interventions that we develop and in turn, the promotion of health, both across and within social groups. So in light of this, the question really becomes, how does using, or in many cases not using, an intersectional approach impact what we know, and in turn, and I think probably more importantly, what we do about population health and health equity? So in order to answer this question, I'm going to draw from my own research on cervical cancer screening among women in the United States. And I'll start by discussing quantitative research that examined how sexual orientation relates to cervical cancer screening without using an intersectional approach. I'll then discuss a quantitative research study that did use an intersectional approach to assess how not only sexual orientation, but also race ethnicity, another dimension of social inequality, affect screening. And last but not least, I'll present findings from a qualitative research study that I conducted to better understand the cervical cancer screening experiences of black lesbian, bisexual, and queer women at the intersection of sexual orientation and race ethnicity. So similarly to intersectionality, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, or LGBTQ issues have gotten more attention in recent years in a whole host of domains, including in medicine and public health. So in 1999, the Institute of Medicine commissioned a report that identified lesbian health as an understudied topic and called for additional research on, in this area of women's health in order to improve the health and healthcare of lesbians. In 2011, the second report here, um, the IOM commissioned a report on the health of LGBT people more broadly, which also identified major gaps in knowledge and research about this time not only lesbian health, but also the health of bisexual women um, who continue to be a particularly understudied population in public health research. So the small but growing body of work examining the health of lesbian and bisexual women, who I'll refer to collectively for the purposes of this talk as sexual minority women, shows that as a result of both interpersonal and institutional discrimination in society and in the healthcare system in particular, sexual minority women are more likely than heterosexual women to have poor health outcomes, including higher rates of smoking and alcohol use, um, higher rates of overweight and obesity, uh, poor mental health outcomes, um, and also to be exposed to abuse, violence, and trauma uh, throughout the life course. Sexual minority women are also um, more likely to lack health insurance access and access to a regular source of care than their heterosexual counterparts, and also are less likely to receive routine gynecological care. Sorry. Um, so in particular, um, I'm going to focus here, like I said, on cervical cancer prevention, and research shows that sexual minority women may be at higher risk of developing cervical cancer in particular compared to heterosexual women because of a higher prevalence of several risk factors, including smoking and HPV infection, and a lower pre uh, prevalence of preventive factors, including access to regular pap testing to screen for and detect abnormal cells of the uterine cervix before cancer develops. So in light of the potentially elevated risk of cervical cancer among sexual minority women, 
Several researchers have investigated access to and utilization of pap tests among both self-identified lesbian and bisexual women and also women who don't identify as, as such but have female sexual partners. And this research, um, as I mentioned earlier, has identified, again, notable barriers to pap test use among sexual minority women, including lower average household incomes, a lack of access to regular care and um, health insurance, and also exposure to discrimination in society and in the healthcare system. Um, however, despite the importance of this earlier research, most studies examining pap test use among sexual minority women have some important metho methodological limitations um, that I think warrant further attention. The first is the use of convenience samples of mostly white college-educated women. Additionally, this body of work as a whole has had issues with the measurement of sexual orientation, and many studies have in fact conflated sexual identity with sexual behavior, which are two separate but overlapping but distinct dimensions of sexual orientation. Also, there's been a lack of use of appropriate comparison groups to which the findings among sexual minority women can be compared. And lastly, there's been really a lack of attention to the potential drivers of sexual orientation disparities um, in PAP testing. So, in light of these methodological limitations, I decided to investigate sexual orientation disparities in PAP test use using a national probability sample of U.S. women such that my results would be generalizable um, to the U.S. population as a whole. Also, I considered the influence of all three overlapping yet distinct dimensions of sexual orientation, namely sexual attraction, sexual orientation identity, and sexual uh, behavior, using appropriate comparison groups for each dimension. And lastly, I assessed whether healthcare factors, including health insurance status, receiving contraception, and STI services use, contributed to sexual orientation disparities and PAP test use. And I did this in order to help inform evidence-based interventions that help promote cervical cancer screening among sexual minority women. So this slide shows the prevalence of pap test use among US women between the ages of 21 and 44 in relation to sexual attraction, sexual orientation identity, and sex of sexual partners, which is a measure of sexual behavior. So focusing on the two dimensions of sexual orientation um, that are most relevant to sexual health care, you can see here that lesbians had a lower prevalence of receiving a pap test compared to heterosexual women, so 43% versus 69%, and that women with only female sexual partners had a lower prevalence of pap test use compared to women with only male sexual partners, so 46% versus 71%. And using logistic regression modeling, we found that these disparities persisted even after accounting for factors such as age and household income that differed between the two sexual orientation groups being compared. We also found that healthcare factors, namely health insurance status, receiving contraception, and STI services use, completely attenuated the corresponding odds ratios, which, suggest, which suggests that these factors may explain pap test use disparities between lesbian and heterosexual women and women with only female versus only male sexual partners. So in conclusion, this research showed that lesbians and women with only female sexual partners were less likely 
than heterosexual women and women with only male sexual partners, respectively, to have received a pap test. Further, sexual orientation disparities in pap test use appear to be explained by healthcare factors, namely a higher prevalence of uninsurance and a lower prevalence of contraceptive and STI services use, all of which are associated with pap testing among sexual minority versus non-sexual minority women. So this research, again, to remind you, which did not use an intersectional lens, suggests that increasing access to health insurance among sexual minority women and administering pap tests through mechanisms other than simply contraception or STI services, as is often the case, would mitigate sexual orientation disparities and pap test use among women in the United States. So keep this conclusion in your mind um, because we will come back to it later. So another dimension of social inequality that shapes cervical cancer risk among women in the United States is race ethnicity. And the graph on the left shows cervical cancer incidence among US women by race ethnicity between 1999 and 2012. And the graph on the right shows cervical cancer mortality by race ethnicity during the same period. And you can see here that in 2012, the incidence of cervical cancer was highest among both black and Latina women, so um, the red and uh, purple lines there, and that cervical cancer mortality was highest among black women, so the red line on the graph on the right, um, about three times higher than white women, in fact. So um, despite evidence, though, that both, as we've seen, sexual orientation and race ethnicity influence cervical cancer risk, only one subnational study had examined how these two dimensions of sexual orientation, of social inequality, rather, simultaneously affect cervical cancer screening before I undertook this research. Also, in addition to focusing only on LA County as the subnational study did, um, the researchers compared sexual minority women to the general population, uh, which includes sexual minority women, as opposed to comparable heterosexual women, and did not seek to, again, identify potential drivers of sexual orientation disparities in pap testing, this time across racial and ethnic groups. So given these gaps in the scientific literature and guided by intersectionality, um, I designed a study that used a national probability sample of US women to examine pap test use in relation to not only sexual orientation, as in the first study I discussed, but also race ethnicity. Additionally, the study assessed whether healthcare factors, including health insurance status and sexual and reproductive health care, explained, as we examined in the first study, sexual orientation disparities in pap test use, but this time across racial and ethnic groups. And the goal here was to see whether this was the case as it had been among women overall. This slide shows the prevalence of pap test use among US women between the ages of 21 and 44 in relation to sex of sexual partners, which is one dimension of sexual orientation for black, Latina, and white women. And you can see here that there was a lower prevalence of pap test use among women with only female versus only male sexual partners for both black and white women, with a greater disparity actually among white women and a similar prevalence of pap test use among women with only female versus only male sexual partners 
among Latina women. And again, using logistic regression modeling, we found that the magnitude of pap test use disparities between women with only female versus only male sexual partners, which was largest among white women followed by black women with no difference among Latina women, persisted. Again, even after accounting for factors that differed between the two sexual orientation groups being compared. And this analysis also suggests um, that healthcare factors, including health insurance, receiving contraception and STI services use completely attenuated and potentially explained differences in pap test use between women with only female versus only male sexual partners among white women only. So as we saw, using an intersectional approach showed that not only the magnitude, but also possibly the mechanisms of sexual orientation disparities in pap test use may vary across racial and ethnic groups which I would not have known if I hadn't used an intersectional approach to guide my research. So potential explanations, why might this be the case? Potential explanations for these differences include that healthcare providers may wrongly assume that white women with only female sexual partners are not at risk of HPV and cervical cancer, which others in the literature has, have termed the lesbian immunity myth. Um, specifically in reference to HIV, but also other STIs, but may not make, providers may actually not make the same assumptions about black and Latina women, um, who are indeed at higher average risk of HPV and cervical cancer um, than white women, and also are portrayed um, as hypersexual and promiscuous in popular culture, which may fuel healthcare provider bias and recommendation practices. Moreover, sexual orientation disparities and pap test use may be less pronounced among black and Latina women compared to white women because of a higher prevalence of public health insurance and use of public health care clinics among women of color, which unlike private health insurance and healthcare facilities at the time of the studies, this is pre-ACA, are required by law to provide routine so our findings suggest that promoting health insurance and providing pap tests through mechanisms other than contraception and STI services use, which we identified, as you remember, as potential interventions in unstratified analyses for women overall, may decrease sexual orientation disparities in pap test use, but only among white women. So this study made clear that additional research was needed to identify the drivers of sexual orientation disparities and pap test use among black women in particular, since the factors that I considered in this analysis did not seem to play a role among black women in terms of driving sexual orientation disparities and pap test use. And the goal of trying to identify the mechanisms, again, is to help inform interventions that are evidence-based and tailored to the specific needs of different groups of women, as opposed to simply designing one-size-fits-all interventions that meet the needs of the majority, in this case, white women who drive the national average, and ignores those in the minority, in this case, black women, who get obscured when we're only dealing with US-based averages. So in order to address this gap in knowledge, and most importantly, in action, um, I designed a qualitative study that used focus group discussions to better understand the cervical cancer screening experiences of black sexual minority women at the intersection of both sexual orientation and race <coughs> ethnicity. So using thematic analysis, guided by, again, an intersectional framework, 
I identified patient-provider communication as a central theme composed of four interrelated sub-themes, including healthcare provider communication style, heteronormative healthcare provider assumptions, heterosexism, racism, and classism, and healthcare provider background. So similarly to what has been reported in the scientific literature on predominantly white sexual minority women, the women in my study who were black sexual minority women preferred healthcare providers who were friendly, supportive, caring, and helpful, had experience with and felt comfortable serving LGBTQ patients, and took the time to build a relationship with them as individuals. They also expressed a strong desire for providers who were knowledgeable about sexual minority women's sexual health, took their sexual health concerns seriously, and answered their sexual health questions accurately. They also expressed a preference for providers who initiated and kind of took the lead um, in asking about their same-sex sexual behavior um, and also provided them with relevant information about safer sex practices and sexual health care um, uh, tailored to their sexual experiences. So in terms of receiving sexual health information that was relevant to her sexual orientation, a 27-year-old black lesbian woman said, the other thing I don't like is when they do give you materials, when they're trying to teach you about different STDs or screenings, they just shove a piece of paper in your face. They don't even go through and tell you, this is what you're supposed to expect, do you have any questions? They're just like, here are these stacks of paper about these random things that you may or may not need to worry about. Could you please, could you at least ask me a few questions, talk about this piece of paper? And this was a sentiment that was echoed by several of the participants um, in the groups. So regarding heteronormative healthcare provider assumptions, which was one of the four key sub-themes that emerged um, in these data, participants reported that providers often assumed, without asking, that they were heterosexual and only had male sexual partners. So why, why might this matter? Well, it mattered to the people in the focus groups because it meant that they weren't getting sexual health information that was relevant to their lives and their healthcare needs. Also, several participants felt that this, um, these assumptions made uh, judgments about um, their own sexual identities and sexual experiences and communicated a lack of respect for them. Um, in contrast, participants recommended that providers ask women open-ended questions that did not assume heterosexuality, but rather reflected the full spectrum of human sexuality. A 25-year-old black lesbian suggested, what if they just asked questions that were neutral and all-encompassing? If they asked, are you sexually active, and you said yes, they could then say, uh, who are you having sex with? Or if they didn't even ask the question and said, okay, if you're sexually active, then we're going to assume that you're every kind of sexual person and give you every piece of, here's how you should protect yourself from whatever it is. Just screen for everything and don't assume. Additionally, many participants expressed fears and experiences of discrimination in relation to both their sexual orientation and race ethnicity. Specifically, several women described being afraid of disclosing their sexual orientation to their healthcare provider out of worry that doing so would jeopardize the patient-provider relationship. And several women also described negative experiences upon sexual orientation disclosure 
um, to their providers. So one story that particularly sticks out in my head is that of one woman who noted how when she disclosed that she was a lesbian and had never had a male sexual partner um, during her pap test, her provider had a very overt reaction of discomfort, um, which prompted her to stop the pap test and uh, tell her that she would be referred to her colleague who had more um, experience dealing with these issues, quote unquote. Um, so that was very um, stunning to hear. And while, um, you know, while it sounds kind of shocking, it was actually a pretty common uh, reflection among participants in the room. Um, additionally, several folks noted that healthcare providers made assumptions about their social class based on their race and ethnicity. And the way that this mattered for their healthcare was that then providers made assumptions about their ability to understand health information, which in turn affected the ways that they communicated with them, engaged with them, um, the way that they involved them in decision making, based on their uh, presumed social class, which they inferred from their race ethnicity. So that was a pretty common experience as well, and people felt like they weren't getting uh, what they needed in terms of the, the level of detail that they wanted about their sexual health and also weren't being, again, engaged in the decision making. And this is uh, pretty uh, commonly reported in the literature with low income populations and populations of color. Okay, so referring to her fear of disclosing her sexual orientation to a healthcare provider in the context, again, of power dynamics related to sexual orientation and race ethnicity, and in this case also age, a 25-year-old black bisexual woman stated, at that time I was actively dating a woman, I kind of said that, and her response was very, it was awkward. So after that I switched, I didn't see her anymore, but I never told the new person. You know, she's old and she's white, I'm afraid that I'm going to possibly ruin this great relationship we have. So again, this fear of disappointing the healthcare provider with whom there's already a very clear hierarchy and power dynamic where the patient, uh, by virtue of being a patient, by virtue of her race, ethnicity, her gender, her age, and her sexual orientation, um, is, is trying to navigate in a way that feels right um, for her. So most <coughs> participants, which I thought was interesting, reported receiving care from a white female uh, registered nurse or nurse practitioner. Um, and several participants also noted that they've had negative experiences with OBGYNs, namely because they felt like they weren't being treated as full people, full individuals, which was very important to um, the vast majority of the participants in the focus groups. And several people also expressed a preference for nurses and physician assistants because they felt like they had more time and attention to devote to the clinical encounter and again, treated them as individuals and full um, human beings. Um, also, in terms of demographic background, participants expressed a preference for healthcare providers with similar social positions and lived experiences as theirs, as the intersection of gen at the intersection of gender, sexual orientation, and/or race ethnicity. And most people expressed a strong preference uh, for Black LGBTQ or LGBTQ competent female providers. So a 27-year-old black bisexual woman noted, I'd love to have a black female doctor. 
I feel like I'd see more of myself in her than I do in other doctors I would visit, and that would, at least for me at the outset, create a higher comfort level. If she reacted badly to my sexual orientation, obviously that would detract from the situation, but I would instantly feel more comfortable with her than I would with a doctor who didn't fit those two criteria. More comfortable being my more authentic self. And oh, if she's gay, I mean, that's Christmas for me. <laughs> so in conclusion, these qualitative research findings suggest that patient-provider communication may be an important contributor to sexual orientation disparities and pap test use among black women. Moreover, both sexual orientation and race ethnicity may influence black sexual minority women's cervical cancer screening experiences and outcomes by shaping their exposure to multiple forms of discrimination, including heterosexism, <coughs> racism, and classism, also by shaping their access to healthcare providers from similar backgrounds as theirs, um, who are underrepresented in healthcare, but providers expressed a strong preference for, and also their rapport with healthcare providers with different social identities and lived experiences, including in relation to building comfort and trust. So interventions to promote cervical cancer screening among black sexual minority women, women will inevitably have to look different from those designed to meet the needs of white sexual minority women. And that these interventions should address inequities related to not only gender and sexual orientation, but also race ethnicity in various domains of the healthcare system, including the clinic environment, which people in the, in the focus groups mentioned, medical forms, patient-provider communication, as we just saw, provider training and competency, and also access to medical and nursing education among sexual minority women and women of color, including sexual minority women of color, all of whom are underrepresented in the healthcare system at the moment. So in conclusion, we saw that using an intersectional approach can help us better understand how multiple dimensions of social identity and social inequality affect population health and elucidate previously unidentified health, health inequities, right? Both across, as we saw with the first study, but also within, as we've seen in the second and third study, social groups. So intersectionality can help us design tailored, evidence-based interventions that promote the health of socially and economically diverse members of a particular social group, so say women, or sexual minorities, or people of color, all of which are incredibly heterogeneous groups. In contrast, failing to use an intersectional approach to guide public health research can actually undermine the promotion of population health in general, and health equity in particular, by leading us to not only ignore but actually at times widen health inequities that exist within social groups through the implementation of interventions that fail to address the needs of those who are in the minority and are often the most marginalized, including in the case of my research, groups of women and sexual minorities who experience racism, poverty, and xenophobia, among others, in addition to sexism and heterosexism, respectively. So using intersectionality to guide public health research is not just an interesting exercise that we do on a Thursday afternoon <laughs> at HKS or a fun thought experiment, right? It's actually critical to ensuring that we promote the health of not only the population overall, which is certainly important, um, 
you know, whatever that population may be, so the US population overall, or women overall, or the LGBTQ population overall, but also that we think about promoting the health of these groups, most marginalized members, right? And that is what intersectionality allows us to do. So um, for me, as a next step, I'm really interested in expanding my work on sexual orientation and race ethnicity and cervical cancer prevention, including not, um, not only cervical cancer screening, but also HPV vaccination. And I'm interested in investigating the role of interpersonal level factors. So I started doing that with the third study around patient-provider communication. Um, and also I'm interested in looking at communication with parents and communication between sexual partners and how that, that might play a role. And I've become increasingly interested in looking at the role of structural factors. Um, and I'm working on developing a project right now where I'm going to be looking at how federal and state health policies and also anti-discrimination laws may affect access to cervical cancer prevention services among diverse groups of US women, including black women and sexual minority women. Um, additionally, I'm interested in conducting additional um, quantitative and qualitative research that uses an intersectional approach to investigate other sexual and reproductive health outcomes that are also critically important, including HIV and STI risk um, and prevention, contraception, and sexual violence. And last but not least, I intend to use an intersectional lens to investigate the interplay between other dimensions of social identity and inequality in relation to sexual and reproductive health, including gender identity and race ethnicity, and also race ethnicity and immigrant status. So stay tuned for that. Um, but for <laughs> now, I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me, um, and all of you for listening. Medina, thank you for joining us. Thank Please share so with us when you have new research completed. Yes, we would be we'll thrilled do. to hear the next iteration. Okay. And where this is the time I would normally announce our speaker for next week, I thought since Mark is sitting to my left, <laughs> I would let him introduce himself and share his topic. Yeah, so I'm Mark, I'm a Walk Fellow. And next week I'm going to present three studies of working fathers and work family bonds. One related with work plan enrichment, that it means what do working fathers learn at home that can be positively transferred at work. Another one about flexibility stigmas that these working fathers can suffer. And another one about uh, the predictors of fatherhood development. So you are more than welcome. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.